Good morning. My name is Brayden Dewey, and I'll be doing the scripture reading this morning. Uh, this, re- this morning, our scripture reading is from the book of Acts. Please follow along in your Bible or use the screens. I'll be reading verses 1 through 11 from Acts chapter 1 in the New International Version. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you, for to know, for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive the power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and all in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their eyes, and a cloud hid them from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him going into heaven. The word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Bud Pomberg, and it's my privilege to talk this morning from God's Word. And so I begin, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Most, or at least many, liturgical churches, and a great many others as well, recognize that there are four religious festivals in the course of a church year. Christmas, Easter, Ascension, and Pentecost. But as our culture becomes more and more secularized, those four great festivals of the church have gone through an evolution, a change. Easter, the greatest and most indispensable event the resurrection of our Lord, has often become, for most of our contemporaries, springtime festival or spring break for the college students. Pentecost has faded as the awareness of the Holy Spirit has been ignored by many churches, except those who perhaps overemphasize Pentecost. Christmas in many cultures, has become a great winter festival with the emphasis on gift-giving and shopping and Santa, then on the coming of Jesus into our world. When we lived in Switzerland, we became acquainted with a major character of the Christmas season. Not only St. Nicholas, but also Schmutzli. Schmutzli was a little man 
scary little man carrying a bag of sticks that if you were bad, Schmutzli was going to deal with you. He had black face. And he would grab you and he would rub that face all over you and so your face would be all black. And that was Christmas. <laughs> the fourth festival, Ascension, has almost no place at all. Ascension happens like the second week of May and Ascension Day is celebrated on a Thursday. And so it doesn't get much script, it doesn't get much place. It's recognized as a holiday in Catholic countries, but elsewhere, Ascension Day is known as Derby Day, if it's noted at all. Maybe some of the people consider Ascension to be a bit out of date. Our scientifically oriented age doesn't want to think about up there in the idea of heaven. They think perhaps that idea is left over from the days when people believed that the earth was flat. But the ascension was apparently very important to Dr. Luke, who wrote two of our New Testament books, and he mentions ascension in both of them the Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles. Following this resurrection from the dead, Jesus had appeared in and out of the disciples' sight for a period of 40 days, giving them the assurance that he had truly been risen from the dead, that they were not hallucinating, helping them to learn a new independence instructing them, teaching them, encouraging them, always near, though very often out of sight. And now on the day of ascension, he walks with the disciples out of Jerusalem to the area of Bethany, a very familiar place for Christ and his disciples and a place where Jesus celebrated many events with his three single friends, Mary, Martha, and their brother Lazarus. He tells his disciples to remain in Jerusalem until the promised gift came, the gift of the Holy Spirit, about which he had also often spoken, and the event that is celebrated on Pentecost. He promised that when the Holy Spirit came upon them, they would receive power to be his witnesses, starting in Jerusalem and Judea, and then working their way through Samaria unto the uttermost parts of the earth. <laughs> and then Luke reports in the ninth verse, after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. Significantly, we need to notice that our Lord was not taken away from us or from them. Some seem to worry that the ascension means that Jesus has forsaken the earth. He retired. He went to glory, and he's staying there until his return. But the account of the ascension does not say that. It says a cloud hid him from their sight. There's no reason to believe that he is not wonderfully near. 
Didn't he promise his followers, and surely I am with you always, even to the close of the age? More and more, I become aware of the fact that I can celebrate the reality of fellowship with those whom I have never met or never seen. I have been reading one of my resources, a man named Lyle Schaller, who was probably the most prominent religious sociologist that has ever lived. I remember one time when I was in the hospital, somebody gave me a book called Solomon Goforth of China. It's about that thick. But when you're in the hospital, there's not an awful lot to do if they leave you alone. And I read the Solomon Goforth of China. I recommend that. It's out of print many, 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 many years, but you can find it, I'm sure. It's a tremendous book. I felt and I still feel as though I know him. I shared those experiences as he went through the Boxer Rebellion in China and tremendous experiences. I happen to like and really appreciate Martin Lloyd-Jones, a man of tremendous biblical knowledge who writes and has written copiously. I had this many books in my library by Martin Lloyd-Jones and John Stott. Now, I've never met any of these people, and yet I feel like I can have fellowship with them because we have not only shared a common love of Christ, but they speak to me. They speak to me. True fellowship can be independent of a visible body. Remember when Christ appeared to his disciples? About 10 disciples there, about eight days after his resurrection. No, it's less, more than eight days. But when he met with those 10 disciples, one of them, Judas, was no longer there, part of the disciples. But one of the other fellows was missing, a fellow by the name of Thomas. Now, wait a minute. Don't call him Doubting Thomas. I hate that. He was a realist. He was not a doubter. He was a realist. And he said, fellas, you're carried away with this report that Jesus has risen again, that he has been seen. You guys are suffering from a mass hallucination brought on by overwhelming grief. Unless I can put my finger in the wounds in his hand, and unless I can put my hand in the wound in his side, I'm not going to believe. I'm a realist. Eight days later, suddenly Jesus appears in the middle of these disciples again. This time Thomas is there. And what happens? Jesus walks right over to Thomas, and he says, here, put your finger in these wounds. Here's my side. Put your hand in my side. And Thomas drops to his knees and says, my Lord and my God. But he probably was also thinking, I didn't know he was around when I said that. He must have heard me. He must... Be near, whether it's visible or not. 
when Jesus ascended, a cloud hid him from their sight, but that cloud did not hide us from his sight. Occasionally in Scripture we read about the veil, the cloud being kind of drawn back. In chapter 7 of the book of Acts, when Stephen was being stoned, it says, I see heaven opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Or Paul on chapter 9 of Acts on the road to Damascus. You know that story. And Peter in Acts chapter 10 on the rooftop of Cornelius the Gentile. When the cloud received him out of their sight, the disciples knew for difference and for certain that there was no difference. Jesus was just as close as ever. Another man I used to like to read Malcolm Muggeridge. What a great name. Malcolm Muggeridge was the founder and editor of Punch magazine, which was the British humor magazine, but he was also the rector of Edinburgh University. Brilliant man. He wrote a book entitled On Rediscovering Jesus. And in that book he describes an event in his life and he ends it by the description by saying, I did not see him. I did not know he was around. It never entered my mind, but I heard what sounded like the breeze in the trees. But it was him. It was him. We, too, must live with a clear awareness of that fact, for when we do, it's going to shape us. It's going to make a difference. My dad used to say to me when I would leave the home as a teenager, Don't forget whose you are. And my dad was with me, no matter where I went, because of his statement. He also would say, don't forget whose you are, speaking of Christ. That makes a difference, doesn't it? I had a member of Kiwanis here on the island when I was secretary said, Bud, are you going to come to the cocktail party that precedes our banquet? Oh, I'll probably be there. Why? Because I've noticed that you can kill a conversation by walking into the room. (laughs) Why is that? Why is that? Shh, preacher's here. Do you realize in an active way our Savior is here? When I am consciously aware of my Lord's presence with me, that changes my vocabulary, my relationship with my family, the relationship with my business and resources, the way I give in benevolence and tithe, the way I use what I keep. When I am aware of His presence, it governs the way I feel about you. Another lesson I draw from the story in Acts chapter 1 is that 
humanity is in heaven. I'm not talking about people who've died and gone there. Some seem to think that God doesn't feel what we feel, that he's indifferent to our joys and our sorrows. But listen to this word from Hebrews chapter 5 concerning Jesus. It says, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And during Lent, we give a lot of thought to what he suffered, the plots, the desertion, the denial, the betrayal, the brutality, the ghastly death. But have you ever thought about the fact that the only man-made thing in heaven are the scars in our Savior? Does all that Jesus went through while here on our planet make any difference to us? Listen to Hebrews 4 from the message. Now that we know what we have, Jesus, the great high priest with ready access to God, let's not let it slip through our fingers. We don't have a priest who is out of touch with our reality. He has been through weakness and testing, experiencing it all, all but the sin. So let's walk right up to him and get what he is so ready to give. Take mercy. Accept help. And the last thought I have today is that on the other side of death is a dear friend and Savior. Our culture is becoming a death-denying culture. Life is being evaluated as cheap. You can see that in the horrific numbers of suicides that take place. You can see it in the enormous increase of recreational marijuana. You can see it in the advances of physician-assisted suicides. You can see it in the abortion rate. Life isn't really that significant to many in our culture. At my age, I am very much aware of the Netherlands process of moving toward euthanasia of old people. There is even a country in our world that believes in executing Down syndrome children as soon as they're born. Life has become cheap. And in our culture that still recognizes life, a lot of people deny it, the open and honest facing of death. George Haas, who just died, said to me shortly after he turned 80 years old, Bud, I'm ready to go home, and I hope I go home this year. Well, he lived for another seven years. It's not that he did not value life. It's that he knew that on the other side of death was a dear friend, his Savior. But we cushion death by the language you use. When a person dies, people say, 
he left us. Well, that's true. But that's a pretty soft, sissy way to face death. He passed over. He's up there looking over us. And wherever the body is laid, if it goes to the mortuary, they place the body in a slumber room. And the cemetery has become a memorial park where the grave plots with the best view are the most expensive. <laughs> now, I believe God has planned for us to view death with a sense of fear, at least a sense of awe, and we shrink from it because it is mysterious. There's a lot unknown about it. Otherwise, I think our experiences of pain or fear or disappointment or crashes would tempt us to simply end it willy-nilly. God has set a sentinel at the gate of death so that no person just casually thinks of their own death, at least without a sense of awe and mystery. For the believer in Christ, there's a sort of double view of his or her death. Certainly true of me. I have a great love of life. I, I really like life. I have a wonderful family, and I love them desperately. I have a lot of friends. I take great joy in the fact that at my advanced age, I still have a chance to get involved in my life's work. At the same time, I have a sense that I don't quite belong here. I have the feeling that's kind of, I'm an alien. I'm a kind of E.T. I'm not at home with the value systems of our world. I'm not at home with the language, the goals, the lifestyles. I sit in a coffee shop and I hear the conversation of old people, young people, and teenagers. And I can't relate to it. Some of it I don't even understand, of course. But the language that's used, the goals that they have, the lifestyles that they live, it's not, I don't feel superior to them. They're just not a part of me. As the old gospel song says, this world is not my home, I'm just passing through. Both of my parents, both of my brothers, Aida, Shanafelt, Komunjan, George Haas, they're gone from me. The closer I draw to the end of my life here on this planet, the more I become aware of a kind of double pull that's take place. Homesick for heaven, but not fed up with earth. I want to live my life ready for either. My Donna and I have been to Hawaii by God's grace, 
I think on three occasions, but what I remember is that the weather was beautiful and the ocean was warm and fun and the golf was expensive, but terrific. Each time I've been there, I have been reminded of a newspaper article that I read many years ago. The reporter tells the story of a young boy of 10 or 11 years of age whose parents had been killed in a terrible automobile accident. This young boy was an only child, had no relatives or close friends that would be able to take care of him. The newspaper reporter was kind of surprised to hear when he said, now what are you going to do, son? The boy said, I'm going to Hawaii. Why are you going to Hawaii? Well, I don't know, but I'm scared to death of doing it. Well, is it the palm trees and the weather and the sand or the surf? Or what is it that causes you to want to go? And he told the reporter, well, <coughs> I'm scared to make the trip. I, uh, I don't know if my tickets are in order. I don't know how I'll get to the airport on time. Can I handle both of my bags? What if I get airsick in the plane? Can I find the right gate at the airport? And the plane, goodness gracious, that scares me to death because if that thing goes down, so do I. I'm really afraid. And the reporter said, well, son, if you are so afraid of the flight and all that's involved in going to Hawaii, why are you so determined to go there? And the boy said, oh, well, I got all kinds of scary things, but don't you know my brother is there? Now, I share your awe, even a sort of fear of death. I still have all sorts of things that I want to do and that I plan to do while I'm here on earth. But I want to be ready for either. And that's what ascension reminds me of. My anticipation of heaven has nothing to do with gates of pearl or streets of gold or rivers of life. My anticipation of heaven is because my older brother is there. B.J. Thomas, who reached great fame with his raindrops keep falling on my head. was a cocaine freak, spending as much as $3,000 a month on cocaine habit, separated from his wife, desperately addicted, missing many appointments and many concerts, unable to perform. When his wife left him, months passed. He came close to ODing. He woke up in the emergency room more than once. And then his wife called one day and said, BJ, 
I've become a believer. I've been born again. And he said, oh, that's nice. And he hung up the phone. Shortly, not too many days after that, he woke up in the emergency room again, and the doctor said, you almost didn't make it this time. He got out of the hospital and called his wife and said, can I come and see you? I want to hear more about what's happened. The long and short story is that B.J. goes to his estranged wife. She shared her newfound faith in Christ. B.J. made a commitment to Christ. He prayed and he says, I anticipated that when I made my commitment to Christ and stopped doing drugs so heavily, I would have enormous withdrawal symptoms and struggles and pain and discomfort. But he said, when I finished praying and inviting Christ to come into my life, I couldn't stop laughing. I started to dance around the room. My wife thought I'd lost my mind. But I was just filled with incomparable joy, and I never had five minutes of drug withdrawal. He changed. He was the top-selling, he said, the top-selling record of B.J. Thomas's in the secular world. And then he wrote another one. The last verse is this. One day I'll be sleeping when death knocks on my door. And I'll awake to find that I'm not homesick anymore. I've gone home. Just gone home where I belong. So when that day comes, when you get the word that I'm gone, don't believe it. I've just gone home. Now it's our privilege to celebrate the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And the reason we can celebrate the sacrament of the Lord's Supper is because of his love for us. And the fact that he is near to us. All that humbly put their trust in Christ and desire his help that they may lead a holy life. All that are truly penitent for their sins and would be delivered from them. All that walk in love with their neighbor and tend to live a new life following the commandment of God and walking from henceforth in his holy ways. All these are invited to draw near with faith and to share in this holy sacrament.